Hello, and welcome back to Back to the Bins. I am your host, Scott Gardner, and rejoining me again today is my co-host, Chris Honeywell. How are ya? Hey, I'm doing great. <laughs> so, we are here to talk about random comic books that we just pulled out of thin air, and I have got a pretty good one today. I've got we're going back to June of 1983 for the New Mutants, the first series number 4, covered by the very awesome Bob McLeod, who I think we used to call this guy Bob McLeod when we were kids. I don't remember, but I just I remember never knowing how to pronounce this guy's name until much later. Written by uh, Chris Claremont of Uncanny X-Men fame. Art on this one, the penciler on this one is Sal Buscema. Uh, Bob McLeod does the finishing inks in this book. Original cover price was a measly 60 cents. And how I lament the fact that those oh, days are long, yeah. long gone. Um, the title on this story is Who's Scaring Stevie? It's a weird, weird title to the story. And we start off in... The uh, New Mutants friend, I, I don't know what her capacity is in the New Mutants' lives, but their friend Stevie, she's this, uh, I think she's like a dance instructor or something. She, she's just some friend of theirs. Um, she's getting this creepy, harassing phone call, and she slams the phone down, and Sean is there. She's the, uh, the I think she's Vietnamese member of the New Mutants. She's the one uh, they call Karma. She can possess other people. And she overhears all this, and you know she's begging Stevie, you, know, you need to talk to the police. And she's like, I already have talked to the police. They won't do anything. It's just threatening phone calls. They've got better things to do and whatever. And, and uh, so Sean's wanting to get you know, either the New Mutants or the X-Men involved in this, and, and Stevie's basically begging her to stay out of it. And they're wandering through the studio when suddenly they, they realize that they're not alone. There's uh, this little red-haired kid looks a lot like Jimmy Olsen's hanging out in there and you know Stevie's wanting to know you know how, how did you get in here what are you doing here and he says that you know the door was open and he just figured he'd come in and you know tidy up the studio after class and everything and she kind of shoes uh Sean and and this kid uh, Peter out of the studio we cut to Professor Xavier's school for gifted youngsters where the rest of the new mutants are outside playing in the snow and they're throwing the frisbee for um, Wolfsbane, who is uh, Rain Sinclair. She's the one that can change back and forth into like a werewolf type of type of creature, into a wolf, and then into like a half human, half wolf, werewolf looking thing, and into a, a little girl and all that. And you know they're just having a little playtime out there. And uh, one of their members throws the frisbee for Cannonball. Who takes off, catches the cannon or catches the frisbee, but then slams into a tree because this was at the point where he still couldn't control his powers very well, and he wasn't even able to make any turns. Um, but he's invulnerable in his blasting form, so all he did was destroy the tree, of which he's really worried about because he's afraid that Professor Xavier is going to yell at him or something that maybe it, that was his favorite tree or whatever. He's worried about the property damage, basically. When all of a sudden they get a summons from Professor Xavier, you know, to come to his studio at once. And their member, Danny Moonstar, um, now she's the one that can create illusions and stuff. She's unsettled by this. She really doesn't like Professor Xavier because not long ago he actually tried to kill her. 
And they go into the school and they're looking for the professor when they run across Lalandra, the empress of the Shi'ar Empire and Xavier's uh, girlfriend at this point. Now, I can't stand this chick. I've never liked the Shi'ar storyline. I've never liked this chick. She's creepy. And I love the fact that several of the members are actually creeped out by her. They think the same thing, that she's kind of kind of creepy and uh cannonball actually thinks to himself that she gives him the willies i love that moment because i feel exactly the same way i never liked this chick just like you feel about holograms huh oh yeah exactly i'm not Uh, crazy about holograms either so they go in and the professor basically wants to have a little heart-to-heart moment with with the new mutants and they wait for shan and shan arrives and then the professor kind of lays it out for them that, you know, not long ago he was possessed by one of the brood who are those kind of alien looking creatures. And it was inside of him and it had basically taken him over. And he admits to them that the new mutants were actually formed by the possessed professor Xavier. So it wasn't even his original idea. And I thought this story was going to go in the direction of where he was going to say, you know, this was all a mistake. You know, I didn't have anything to do with this, and, and basically I'm disbanding you. But instead he he says that, you know, while I didn't do this and I feel like this decision was kind of tainted, I'm going to stand by it. I'm going to train you to be basically the, the new junior X-Men. And, you know, they're all thrilled to hear this. And Danny surprisingly has a, a bit of a change of heart. She says that basically that she forgives Xavier. She realizes that he wasn't in control when he tried to kill them and everything. And so she's going to give them a chance. And the professor senses that, you know, something's up with Shan. And he asks her, you know, what what's wrong? You know, I can sense, you know, something's up with you. And she says that it's Stevie. She's worried about her because of these harassing phone calls. And she doesn't know what to do. And, you know, is there anything that they can do to help? And the professor actually overhears Danny say to Shan that, you know, she's going to help whether, you know, the professor says they can or not. And there's a great little moment where the professor's thinking to himself that basically I'm tired of this girl's shit, that she's challenging me all the time and I'm going to, you know, put the kibosh on it. So at the end of the meeting, he actually has a little confrontation with her where he tells her, you know, to stop treating him like an enemy and challenging him all the time. And they leave. And Lalandra comes into the room and has a little moment with Xavier where she's trying to comfort him and all. And and it's actually kind of creepy. And I've always, I'll admit that I've always had kind of a weird feeling about Professor Xavier too. I've always kind of felt felt that he wasn't the benevolent, likable teacher that he was trying to come off that he actually had a bit of a creepy weird side to him and he agenda underneath everything yeah yeah he definitely does in this because he says at one point he actually says these are children um raised in a more rebellious age the day may come when i ask them to risk and perhaps sacrifice their lives such loyalty comes not from fear but respect and just the way I read that was like almost like this guy is is like a It's very Magneto like. Yeah, it's almost like a Hitler youth kind of thing. Like I expect them to follow me and possibly lay down their lives for me and I was like, "Whoa, that's kind of that's kind of dark." You know, that's not well, that's at all what happens the, with the X-Men. You know, the X-Men are risking mm-hmm. their lives all the time for yeah. his projects. So it's realistic what he's saying, but yeah, it's kind of creepy. It is very creepy. He has a military, very... he has a military unit <laughs> mm-hmm. that's extremely powerful. 
yeah, that he expects to to willingly sacrifice them, themselves for his cause if necessary. Yeah, that's very. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what the word is. Just very uh, dictatorial, I guess. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's it's almost like um, a, mili- a militia group or something yeah. like that. Something with a charismatic leader, a cult mm-hmm. or whatever. Cult, yeah, call it, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, mega, mega, mega. Ah, what is that word? Mega. And and hey, come on. What is the classic, you know, rule the world guy, but a guy in a wheel, bald guy in a wheelchair, <laughs> rolling around <laughs> with uh, with an incredibly developed brain. All right, just to make me feel ancient as hell, we cut to Stevie's apartment, and. Uh, Cannonball comes walking up to Sunspot and says, hey, what are you doing there? What is that gizmo you're building? And he's building a device, a very, actually very accurate to what eventually came about device that is intended to trace any incoming phone calls that Stevie gets and read out the phone number on, on the digital display, which is basically, it's a, you know, it's a, uh, uh, what do you it's call everybody's it? phone now. <laughs> yeah. I, what, what do you call that, though? It's the um, caller ID. ID. He's building a caller ID. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot that we didn't have caller ID in 1983. So this seemed like a very futuristic thing at the time. But, uh, you know, now everybody's got one. But it it's funny that it actually does look a lot like what caller IDs came to look like. It, it's actually pretty pretty accurate. Yeah, he's uh, – yeah, What'd you say? He's a hacker. He's a hacker. He's yeah. A, yeah he's like uh, Matthew Broderick in War Games. <laughs> so she she starts getting phone calls, several of which are just you know regular everyday phone calls. But then she gets the phone call she's been waiting for from from the guy who's been calling and threatening her. And they race to the location, and it's a phone booth. And Wolfsbane, you know, she turns into her wolf form and she sniffs the phone booth and she gets uh, the scent of the person, which they track to the local high school. And going on right that very instant at the high school is the spring mixer, which the the, uh, New Mutants had actually been invited to. And so several of the members switch to you know their their civilian identities and they go into the, the mixer and they're trying to basically... Uh, sniff out this person, you know, rat, you know, see if they can they can weed out this person from the crowd. Wolfsbane and Cannonball stand outside the window, and suddenly they're able to identify the the person. And naturally, it's the creepy Jimmy Olsen redheaded kid from the beginning of the story. This this Peter character, and when he realizes that they're onto him, you know, he freaks out and runs. And Wolfsbane, totally not thinking. Um, dives through the window and runs after him. So then you've got this wolf running through the middle of this, you know, this school dance, and everybody freaks out. Shan gets trampled, which I, th- I thought was actually kind of funny because I never liked her character anyway. I know that's mean, but I thought it was funny. The kid runs outside. He gets into his uh, beautiful uh, this red vet that he's got, and he tears off down the street. And uh, Wolfsbane's trying to catch him, but you know he's quickly out distancing her. So Cannonball decides he's got to take matters into his own hands. He goes blasting off after the thing, and in the greatest sequence of the whole book, this this was the thing that made this story for me. The guy is about to run down this mother and child who are crossing the street. He either doesn't see him or he doesn't care one way or the other. And so Sam Cannonball he speeds up 
he grabs them and you know of course while he's blasting and while he's carrying somebody they're all invulnerable but he realizes he's headed to the end of a dead end street and he's going to smash into this building and probably destroy it so you know he's thinking to himself you know i i you know i've got to do something you know i, I can't you know let this happen and suddenly he veers off and he's he's flying straight up and he's so excited he's actually managed to turn and this was the first time you know in in cannonball's history that he was able to uh, do something other than just fly in a straight line. So it was, you know, it was a big moment. I remember reading this originally when it came out back in '83 and thinking, "Wow, you know, that was that was quite the moment, you know, where he was actually starting to get a handle on his powers." But now, of course, he's going straight up and you know, like a rocket, and he realizes he doesn't know how to get back down. So the professor kind of coaches him to, you know, release his power in these small little bursts and and basically like stair step himself back down to the ground. You know, he crashes kind of, you know kind of roughly to the ground but at least everybody's safe and you know he's he's feeling you know very proud of himself that he was able to save these lives and and not cause any property damage for a change in the meantime this stevie or this uh, peter kid you know he's flying down the street and he loses control of his uh, of his car and he smashes into this construction site the car catches fire and he he ditches the car and he runs into this abandoned building and the rest of the new mutants show up sun uh, sunspot you know, is trying to uh, deal with this burning car before it can uh, destroy, you know, any any property or anything. But the fire spreads after the car explodes, and it catches this, uh, this like, uh, blasting shack, you know, where all these explosives are kept. It catches it on fire, and he realizes that his, all the rest of his friends that went inside this building to catch this kid, they're all going to die if all this these explosives go off. So he's trying to warn them, you know, to get out as quickly as possible. Of course, the explosives go off and the building starts to collapse. And uh, Cannonball's, you know, he shows up again and he's trying to rescue as many people as he can. Shan possesses Peter and, and they're trying to flee the building in Sunspot. You know, there's a great panel of him holding up the building as everybody, you know, manages manages to escape. But they didn't end up destroying this entire building. So they wind up back at Steve's uh, Stevie's apartment. And they're confronting this kid, and you know, basically, well, why were you doing this? You know, why were you terrorizing Stevie? You know, what what was your agenda behind this whole thing? You know, and and he refuses to talk. So she's like, well, you know, we're going to have to tell your parents about this. And at this point, the kid freaks out. You know, please don't tell them. And they realize that there's something bigger going on here, but they can't get the kid to talk about it. So. Danny, she's got the power to pull images out of people's minds. You know, and, and manifest these illusions based on what their greatest, you know, fears or their wildest dreams are, whatever their hearts desire, that that sort of thing. So she pulls this image out of his mind and it's of this guy making out with Stevie. So he was doing all this because he actually had a crush on her. She's his, his dancing instructor, you know, his teacher. So he had this crush on his teacher, which I got a sidetrack for a minute. It got me to thinking, you know, what if they pulled out a much more graphic image, you know, of course, this is a comic, and that's not going to happen. But potentially, you know, if, if this is a young, yeah. horny teenager, they could have pulled out a really, really embarrassing type of Something thing. Something pretty disturbing, yes. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's just simply them making out, so it's it's nothing twisted or you know, like my evil, perverted mind would pull out. And then uh, that she actually pulls out another image, which is the kid. Am I clicking? So yes, I feel like I'm, I'm 
Alright, hang on. Just started clicking. I was really trying to do this without having to make a whole lot of edits, but the damn, I can hear it. Alright, hopefully that's better. Well, then she pulls out another image, which is much more disturbing, of the kid getting his ass whooped with a belt by his parents. And long story short, it turns out that this kid is being horribly abused in his own home by his parents. He's he's being beaten on a regular basis. You know, it turns out he's all full of scars and he's really messed up emotionally. And he was trying not only to get Stevie to love him, but he was he was actually trying to get her to I guess rough him up a bit. You know, and that's how he equates love is when somebody, you know, slaps him around or what it, it means that they love him or so. He, the kid's really, he's really just messed up. Yeah. And so the the story ends where you know he's he's kind of carted off to to get some you know hopefully some sort of psychiatric treatment and he's probably going to wind up in you know in a foster home and all this and the story Unthorazine. wraps up. Yeah. Well, it wraps up, and I thought it was odd that the professor says, you know, that, that he'll undergo therapy, and then the professor actually even says, which I'll assist in. And I'm thinking, what, really? I mean, the professor's got time no! for... <laughs> He's going to give him the neural neutralizer. <laughs> you know, but it gets kind of preachy at the end of the story where, uh, you know, the professor tries to wrap up the story with, you know, I hope you realize that... Yeah, it, it does. It kind of has a moral of... You know, you're not just here to serve mutant kind, yeah. and you're not just here to fight supervillains. You know, this now, is the kind of thing. What have we learned here? Yeah, exactly. And so it, it was a good tale, but I have to say it didn't quite hold up to my memories of how awesome this these early early issues of of New Mutants well, were. It was it was a lot of fun, but it's a lot of it seems so terribly cliched now because I had that. I remember. I had that comic. I remember when that came out. But the new, mm-hmm. the new mutants of the X Men, to a lesser extent, were sort of the, the uh, social ill of the month comic. You know, they would they I... would go over some because it was tar- the new mutants especially was, they were thinking maybe there was a younger audience and that was their way of being sort of edgy and socially responsible, which Marvel loves to do, right? Stuff like that, you know. So. I'm sure at the time it was very, very relevant and probably right. not not quite as uh, as overdone and cliched as it as it seems to me now. Rereading it, it seems like wow, I've read this story a million times. And I mean, right off the bat, I could tell who the who the guy on the phone was when when we cut to the scene with the kid and the yeah. thing. I just now maybe it was some trace memory or something that I remembered that it was him, well, but it's I also doubt because it. There it's wasn't been. It. There wasn't any other characters being involved, yeah, you know, <laughs> introduced. And what else was he doing besides just be? You know, he was a background character being introduced. No, there's too many, too few pages to just like have right. some random incident. It all ends up getting linked in. Right. But what I what I actually purchased this issue for? I mean, the the whole reason I got this, and I'm trying to get a, a run of the earliest issues of New Mutants is for the Bob McCloud artwork because he was actually the artist on the earliest issues in this one he inks uh-huh. but I think this book is a perfect perfect study of uh, of a theory I've had for a while which is you know you've got to match the right artist with the right inker 
Now, I'm not the biggest Sal Buscema fan in the world. I don't dislike the guy. Don't get me wrong. I, he's, he does some beautiful art, but he's very hit and miss. And in this issue, the art is fantastic because Bob McCloud brings just enough of his own style and overlays it over Buscema's solid but not spectacular style. And the combination works. It's just gorgeous, especially the, the two pages that I talked about where, where Cannonball is actually able to make his first turn and save those lives. That whole sequence, I mean, it's just great, great, great comic book art. But then you take Buscema a few years later when he was working on Spectacular Spider-Man during the Clone Saga and most anybody will tell you that that stuff is terrible. And it's not so much Buscema's fault because his style didn't so much change is that he was just not being inked by a complimentary inker. The, the styles clashed horribly. And so, you know, I, I just I love to look at this as a, as a nice study in, in that, you know, that, you know, if you get the right mix... Wow. I mean, you can take somebody that's eh and make them just really and put some style and yeah. class to it. Some class yep. and gravitas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I've gone on long enough. What do you got? Well, mine will 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 the your inker little inker rant there sort of leads into mine. <clears throat> Pardon me. This time we're not going back too far. We're going back to March 2002. This is the Batman, Batman the Ten Cent Adventure, and Ooh. I guess it's number one, or it was maybe just a promotional. The cover is by Johnson. Is all it says. There's no other credit given anywhere else in the book as to who it is, and it's just sort of a a shot of uh, a simple shot of Bruce Wayne being caught in a spotlight with. A Batman shadow behind him. It's uh, written by Greg Rucka, art by Rick Burchett, and inked by Klaus Jansen, one of my favorite Ooh, inkers of all not time. Not a good combination. And um, the original cover price was 10 cents. Now, this one is for like a 10 cent promo copy, it's pretty much the, the length of a normal, normal cop comic. It's mm -hmm. what I think, 22 pages, something like that, 23 pages, 24 pages, and it's basically sort of a recap of the Batman origin in psychology by his bodyguard Sasha, who I guess at the I don't know if it, she was being called Robin, but she's sort of his new sidekick. I don't know. I don't. This I don't even remember buying this comic I pulled it out and was just like hmm this is strange <laughs> and so it's basically a recap of and you know you find out about three or four pages in that it's being told by Sasha and that she was his bodyguard and she was such a good bodyguard for Bruce Wayne that he, you know she basically got recruited as as Batman's sidekick and uh, she's secretly in love with him but uh, you know he's had a girlfriend named Vesper Fairchild and uh, so basically the whole issue is her and Batman just doing their rounds, you know, thwarting a bank robbery, you know, saving people from a burning building. And it's all, you know, I, I don't know if it's because of Klaus Jansen and his 
history with Frank Miller and Frank Miller's history with Batman, but the, the opening page is almost a total copy of this Frank Miller issue of Daredevil that had a little kid in the same sort of poses. It's, you know, it's it shows, like, young Bruce Wayne, like, kneeling in an alley by his parents and, you know, Batman with his cowl over him. And, but it's almost copied exactly from this Frank Miller Daredevil. And uh, the art in it is is pretty good. It's, it's got, it's, it's got that Klaus Janssen feel, which I can almost compare to Gene Colan, you know, in that sort of flowing and a nice thick line, but some thin, thin lines too, but a nice amount of black. But really it's, 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 it reminds me of sort of a watered down Batman year one type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of style. It's a lot of just, you know, an, an an artist getting to do his take of the classic Batman of like, okay, we'll leave these guys to the cops and I'll fly away as the cops pull in and, you know, and I'll save this guy from the tiger that got loose from the Gotham City Jail and show my way with animals and, you know, just, <laughs> you know, it's basically sort of like the intro to like you would see a Batman movie, you know, it's Batman doing its his thing and it's sort of in the Frank Miller established style and then uh, at the very end we get a plot to, we get the actual plot in the last two pages where they're at the Bat Cave afterwards and Bruce is beating himself up because in the fire that they help people out one person died so after saving all these people one person died so he's sitting there torturing himself and she says come on you know it's time for you to to go to bed and tomorrow's another night or you know whatever so you know as they come up out of the bat cave through the clock he's going into another room and uh, she sees that he's you know staring in the door in shock and she comes through and on the floor is his ex-girlfriend they'd just recently broken up it was told earlier and she's laying on the floor you know dead with blood around her and all of a sudden the door's kicked in and uh, the cops are there so someone's basically looks like they've set up Bruce Wayne for a murder and it says to be concluded in Detective Comics number 766 and then there's an ad in the back with uh, all the different you know comics that this plays out in there's one in Batgirl number 24 Nightwing number 65 Gotham Knights number 25 Birds of Prey number 39 Robin number 98 and Batman number 599 wow that's a lot of books yeah that's a lot and this is you know so being a 10 cent one it was sort of light on story but you know it was a sort of a little teaser but it's still a full size comic sort of thing yeah, this I I kind of I mean I remember when this happened. There were actually two of these. There was the Batman one, and then there was a Superman one. Uh-huh. Superman, the Ten Cent Adventure, and I read the Superman one, and I don't remember much of it. This was at a time when I was reading Superman, but not really enjoying it because yeah. I, I'm pretty sure the artist on that was Scott McDaniel, who I'm just really not a fan of. And uh, so, it, but I think they were intended as jumping on points you know they they were purposely put out at 10 cents to get people to scarf them up 
and hopefully get yeah to get sucked in and i've always wondered if it worked because i know they sold like hotcakes but i think there's a great potential there for that to totally backfire on you where you know you sell it for 10 cents but then when people realize what the regular books cost right. and that you've got to buy you know 15 different titles to get the whole story right. I, I just wonder if it really panned out at all i never really heard one way or the other whether it was a good ploy that Marketing worked or, or whether it didn't well let's look at the this way i haven't seen any more 10 cent adventures after that so <laughs> maybe that's that, a good that, maybe that says something <laughs> But I, I it wasn't totally a bad read. It just wasn't anything new at all. You know, it was it was a jumping on point. It was maybe for somebody who never read Batman or hasn't read Batman since they were a little kid, or you know, just knew it from the movies or whatever. Right. But that's what I got the impression of. Well, I, I'm sorry. I totally didn't mean to walk over you at the beginning when you were commenting on the art. What What did you think of that combination? And and I'll, I'll give you my spin on it. Well, I. I think I I don't know much of Greg Rucka's work at all. I don't know anything about it before this. I find the whole page layout, the whole way that the story is illustrated to be very Frank Millerish. There's there's whole there's a scene of of well, Sasha. Well, no, see, Ruck, his... Rucka's the writer though, right? Bert, wasn't it oh, Bert Chat that was the Bert artist? Chat, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but it's written very Frank Miller like too. But there's a there's a shot of Sasha, his his uh, sidekick. I don't know if she's Robin or whatever. She doesn't have an R on or anything. R on, but she's got a stick that's her main weapon, and she's sort of got the stick, you know, perpendicular to the ground, and she's swinging around the stick and kicking somebody, and it's right out of a Frank Miller comic and and it's 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 derivative it's not terrible but it's kind of sketchy and i think the um klaus jansen adds to that frank miller-ish to it but it doesn't quite save it you know from being mm -hmm. trite it, it is it's 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 pretty trite it's it's a pretty by it's by the numbers post miller batman you know it's kind of it's kind of like an illustration of how, okay, Frank Miller was very influential, especially what he did with Batman and, and Daredevil and stuff like that. Right. But at the same time, then you get the imitators who don't who really liked it and they're sort of paying tribute or whatever, but they don't really get that you know he was sort of ahead of ahead of the curve, and instead of trying to take something in their own direction, they're just sort of. I'm gonna, you know, work with that style, you know, and I really like Frank Miller, so I'm gonna copy him, you know. It might be a phrase right. in their, in their artistic career or whatever, but, and but when it's not as good or it doesn't add anything to it, it just comes off as being, you know, just sort of and, and at this point in time, you know, I mean, the Dark Knight comic was just a huge big deal, so, right, you know, comic the the comic companies are infamous for taking an idea and just humping it into the ground beating on the dead horse till it's just a greasy puddle on the you know <laughs> it's a, a, i mean right at the end of this comic you know you flip to the last page and they're and they're pushing what three six comics on you that that oh you like this story here's six comics that you have to read to 
to, you know, complete the the whole story. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Well, well I, that's, I commented that was some on the stuff that drove me away from collecting comics for years because it was like I don't have time to pour through all these different, you know, variations on whatever was just successful. Shit, forget time. Who's got the money these yeah. days to, to do all that? Yeah, I, I, I feel you on that because I felt the same way that, you know, hear people, you know, bitch and complain about the X-Men. Well, they're hardly alone in having umpteen titles that, you know, the companies make you feel obligated yeah. to, to buy yeah, to Marvel try to keep up with the story. Equally guilty. Yeah, especially of with Batman. It. Yeah. And, especially you know, with Batman. Yeah. Batman and, then, and, you know, Marvel was was with the X-Men and Spider-Man, you know, it's like, how many Spider-Man titles do you think we could come up with? I don't know how many he'll sell. Let's find out. Let's put exactly. out 15 and whittle it down to, you know. That's one nice thing about, you know, what's going on today with, with you know, the, the companies having a little bit of trouble is a lot of those super, superfluous titles that popped up during the 80s and 90s are starting to fade away down, now. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's coming down to the ones that really do sell versus the ones that, ah, maybe we can squeeze a, you know, a couple extra bucks out of you know, the, the other, you know, the fans with a little bit of extra money. So I, I do like that element. But uh, the reason I said kind of about the art at the beginning is because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with Rick Burchett as far as he did a lot of work with the DC... Um, animated universe characters when they were in comics. You know what? What I mean is like when Bat, you know, it was Batman the animated series, Superman the animated series, Justice League that kind of thing. They actually had comics running at the same time that those shows were on TV that were based on the show. So you know you had a comic that became a TV show, and now there's a comic based on that. T- so it's kind of a weird you know circle. Yeah. But he did a lot of issues of like you know Batman. Um, trying to remember what the name of that book was i think it was just called the batman adventures it was like batman adventures batman and robin adventures superman adventures those kind of things and they were done very much in that animated bruce tim mike parabek style so that's how i'm familiar with rick burchett now he might have a completely other comic book style when he does you know quote unquote regular comic books he might have a completely different art style but the art style I'm picturing in my head is very much that Batman the Animated Series art style, and I cannot picture Klaus Jansen of all people. Well, maybe that's over what that. make it makes it look so Frank Millery. Maybe yeah, that's exactly. Why they put Klaus Jansen in it to make it look a little less cartoony, because it's got yeah. it's got it. I could see some cartoon element to it in the way. Yeah, I a think lot that's of it's a- framed and stuff, but it is that, but it's. It is more the dark Batman, you know, urban warrior type of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a a really bad combo. Because you know me, I'm, I I don't want to diss the guy. I don't dislike Klaus Jansen, but I only think he works in sometimes. In, yeah, yeah, sometimes in very limited ways with with only certain artists. Frank Miller being one of them, and he doesn't work with somebody who draws in a much more mainstream. Right. You know, regular comic book style. You know, he, he did some work uh, that I looked at a while ago on a uh, 
a miniseries where Punisher and Captain America teamed up. And I think it was over uh, Sal, Sal Buscema, I think it was. And it was just really, it, it didn't work for either one of them. Because you got one guy who's very much a traditional Marvel artist, and you got this other guy who's doing his weird Frank Miller thing. And the two styles just clashed bad. Yeah. But uh, we're going a little long for this one, so I'll wrap it up. But I just thought it was interesting. Now, I've never heard of this Vesper girlfriend that you were talking about, but I got a kick out of that because she you, you said she got... She was brought in for this storyline. said she died at the end of it? Well, yeah. It, it was told early in the story, well, he had a girlfriend named Vesper, but then she started to get serious, so he dumped her. Classic Bruce Wayne, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then, well, so you get to know... Who, she was like a lawyer or something. She was very smart successful businesswoman so what? they just give so she might have just been introduced just so they could kill her and set up the story <laughs> well i don't know if you've seen the the latest two james bond movies but vesper was bond's girlfriend oh. who gets killed's name oh. in uh, casino royale so i thought that was interesting that batman and james bond have a little bit something more in common yeah with dead girlfriends. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show. So if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.